It's your storyteller. It's been a couple uh, readings. Had a bad couple of days. So Irish, this one's for you, darling. I promise the book and I will finish your book. I'm going to start with a quote. It's one of my favorites from 1984. Those who control the past control the future. Those who control the present control the past. George Orwell, 1984. Now I want you to think about this book as I read in modern terms. I want you to think about cell phones and Alexis. Fake news, true news, Google, Facebook, Twitter, all of those little things that listen to our thoughts. And how we never know who the thought police are plugged into. Scary thought, ain't it? So on with the story. Chapter 4. With the deep, unconscious sigh, which not even the nearness of this telescreen could prevent him from uttering when his day's work started, Winston pulled the speak-right towards him, blew the dust from its mouthpiece, and put on his spectacles. Then he unrolled and clipped together four small cylinders of paper which had already flopped out of the mnemonic tube on the right-hand side of his desk. In the walls of the cubicle, there were three orifices. To the right of the speak right, small pneumatic tube for written messages. To the left, larger one for newspapers. And on the side wall within reach of Winston's arm, a large oblong slit protected by a wire grating. This last one was for the disposal of waste paper. Similar slits existed in tens of thousands of houses throughout the building. Not only in every room, but in short intervals in every corridor. For some reason, they were nicknamed memory holes. When one knew that any document was due for destruction, or even saw a scrap of waste paper lying about, it was an automatic action to lift the flap at the nearest memory hole and drop it in, whereupon it could be whirled away in a current of warm air to the enormous furnaces which were hidden somewhere in the recesses of the building. Winston examined the four slips of paper he had unrolled. Each contained a message of only one or two lines and abbreviated jargon. Not exactly newspeak, but consisted largely of newspeak words. It was used in the ministry for internal purposes. They ran. Times. 17.3.84. BB. Speech malreported. Africa. Rectify. Times 19.12.83, 
forecast three yp fourth quarter forty eighty three misprints verify current issue times fourteen point two point eighty four mini pliny mal quoted chocolate rectify times three point one two times eight three reported bb day order double plus good refs unpersons rewrite full wise absub anti failing with a faint feeling of satisfaction winston laid the fourth message aside it would be intricate and responsible job and had better be dealt with last the other three were routine matters though the second one would probably mean some tedious waiting through lists or figures winston dialed back numbers on the telescreen and called for the appropriate issues of the times which slid out a pneumatic tube only a few minutes delay the message he had received referred to articles and new items which for one reason or another it was thought necessary to alter or as the official phrase had put it to rectify for example in the appearance of the times of the 17th of march the big brother was in his speech of the previous day had predicted that the south indian western front would remain quiet but that of a eurasian offensive would be shortly launched into north africa as it happened the eurasian higher command had launched its offensive in south india and left north africa alone therefore it was necessary to rewrite the paragraph of big brother's speech in such a way it made him predict the thing that actually happened or again the times on the nineteenth of december had published the official forecasts of the outpost of various classes of consumption goods in the fourth quarter of 1983 which was also in the sixth quarter of the ninth three-year plan today's issue containing a statement of actual output from which it appeared that the forecasts in every instance were grossly wrong Winston's job was to rectify the original figures by making them agree with the latter ones. As for the third message, it referred to a simple error which could be set right in a couple of minutes. A short time ago, as February, the Ministry of Pliny had issued a promise, a categorical pledge, were the official words. That there would no be there would be no reduction of chocolate rations during nineteen eighty four. Actually, as Winston was aware, the chocolate ration had been reduced from thirty grams to twenty at the end of the present week. All that was needed was to substitute the original promise, a warning that it would probably be necessary to reduce the ration in some time in April. As soon as Winston had dealt with each of the message, he clipped his speak-written corrections into the appropriate copy of the Times and pushed them into the pneumatic tube. Then, with a movement which was nearly as possible unconscious, 
He crumpled up the first original message and any notes he made to himself and dropped them into the memory hole, only to be devoured by flames. What happened in the unseen labyrinth in which the pneumatic tubes led, he did not know. But he didn't know in general terms. As soon as all the corrections happened to be in the necessary in the particular number of times have been assembled and collated, that number would be reprinted and the original copy would be destroyed, and the corrected copy placed in the files in its stead. This continuous process of alterations was appiled not just to newspapers, but to books, periodicals, pamphlets, posters, leaflets, films, soundtracks, cartoons, photographs, every kind of literature or documentation which might conceivably hold any political or ideological sig significance. Day by day, and almost minute by minute, the past was brought up to date. This was in every way prediction made by the party which would be shown by documentary evidence which had been correct. Nor was any item of news or expression of opinion which conflicted the needs of the moment ever allowed to remain on the record. All history was pamphletist, scraped clean, and reincented exactly how often as necessary. No one, in case it would be, have been possible once the deed was done, to prove that any falsification had taken place. The largest section of the records department, far larger than the one which Winston worked, consisted of simply of persons whose duty it was to track down and collect all copies of books, newspapers, and other documents which have superseded and were due for destruction. A number of the times which might, because of changes in political alignment or mistaken prophecies uttered by Big Brother, have been rewritten a dozen times and stood, stood still on the bearings of its original files and no other copy existed to contradict it. Books were also recalled and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten again and again. They were invariably reissued without any admission to any altercation. Even the written instructions which Winston received, which he inevitably got rid of as soon as he had dealt with them, never stated or implied that an act of forgery was to be committed. Always reference was to slips, errors, misprints, or misquotations, which it was necessary to put right in the entrance of accuracy. But actually, he thought as he readjusted the Ministry of Pliny's figures, it was not even forgery. It was merely the substitution for one piece of a nonsense for another. Most of the material you were dealing with had no connection with anything in the real world, not even the kind of connection that contained in a direct lie. Statistics were much more of a fantasy in their original versions as in their rectified versions. 
a great deal of time you were expected to make them out of your head. For example, Ministry of Pliny's forecast had estimated the output of boots at the quarter at a hundred and fifty hundred and forty five million pairs. The actual output was given as sixty two million. Winston, however, in rewriting the forecast, marked the figure down as fifty seven millions to allow for the usual claim that the quota had been overfullified, overfulfilled. In any case, 62 millions was no nearly the truth, and 40, 57 millions, or 145 millions, very likely no boots had been produced at all. Likelier still, nobody knew how many had been produced, much cared less. All one knew was that very quarter astronomical numbers of boots were produced on paper. Perhaps half the population of Oceania was barefoot. And so it was with every class of recorded fact, great or small, everything faded away into a shadow world in which, finally, even the date of the year had been uncertain. Winston glanced across the hall. In the corresponding cubicle on the other side was a small, precise-looking, dark-chinned man named Tillerson, who was working steadily away. With a folded newspaper on his knee and his mouth very close to the mouthpiece of the speakwrite, he had the air of trying to keep himself... He had the air of trying to keep what he was saying a secret between him and the telescreen. He looked up, and his spectacles darted a hostile flash in Winston's direction. Winston hardly knew Tillerson, and he had no idea what work he was employed on. People in the records department did not readily talk about their jobs. In the long windowless hall, with its double row of cubicles, and its endless rustle of papers and hum of voice murmuring into their speak rights, they were not quite a dozen people whom Winston did not even know by name, though he saw them daily, hurrying to and fro from the corridors or gesticulating in the two minutes' hate. He knew that in the cubicle next to him was a little woman in sandy hair, toiled day in and day out at simply tracking down and deleting from the press the names of people who had been vaporized or who have been considered never existed. There was a certain fitness to this, since her own husband had been vaporized a couple years earlier. A few cubicles down, a mild, infectual, dreamy creature named Ampleforth, with very hairy ears and a surprising talent for juggling rhymes and meters, was engaged in producing garbled versions of indefinite texts that were called poems, which had become ideologically offensive, but for one way or another were to be retained in the anthologies. And this hall, with its fifty workers thereabouts, there's only one subsection, a single cell. 
as it were, in the huge complexity of the records department. Beyond, above, below, there are swarms of workers engaged in the unimaginable magnitude of jobs. There were huge printing shops with their editors and sub-editors, their typography experts, and their elaborately equipped studios for faking photographs. There were teleprogram sections with its engineers and producers and its teams of actors specially chosen for their skill in imitating voices. There are armies of reference clerks whose job was to simply draw up the books and periodicals which were due for recall. There were vast respiratories. That's not right, but I'm moving on that corrected documents and were stored in the hidden furnaces where the original copies were destroyed. And somewhere or another, quite anonymous, they were the directing brains that coordinated the whole effect and laid down the lines of the policy which made it necessary that this fragment of the past should be preserved and one falsified and another rubbed out from existence. And the records department, after all, was itself an only single branch of the Ministry of Proof of Truth, whose primary job was not to reconstruct the past, but to supply the city, citizens of Oceania with new, newspapers, films, text, television programs, plays, novels, every conceivable kind of information, instruction, or entertainment, from statue to slogan, from lyric to biological tryst, from children's spelling books to newspeak dictionary, and the ministry not only had to supply the multifarious needs of the party, but also had to repeat the whole operation at the lower level at the benefit of the proletot. There was a whole chain of separate departments dealing with proletarian literature, music, drama, entertainment generally. Here were perused rubbishly newspapers containing almost nothing except sports, crime, astrology, sensational five-cent novelettes, uh, films oozing with sex and sentimental songs which were composed entirely by mechanical needs on a special type of kaleidoscope known as a versificator. There was a whole sub subsection, porn sec, it was called in Noonspeak, engaged in producing the lowest kinds of pornography, and it was sent out in sealed packets which no party member other than those who worked on it were permitted to see. Three messages slid out of the mnemonic tube while Winston was working, but they were simple matters, and he disposed of them before the two minutes hate interrupted him. When the hate was over, he returned to his cubicle, took his newspeak dictionary from the shelf, and pushed it and pushed the speak right to one side cleaned his spectacles and settled down to the, his main job of the morning. Winston's great pleasure in life was his work. Most of it was tedious routine. 
but included there were also jobs so difficult and intricate that you could lose yourself in them, as in the depths of a mathematical problem, delicate pieces of forgery in which you had nothing to guide you except your knowledge of the principles of insock and your estimate of what the party wanted you to say. Winston was good at this kind of thing. On occasion, he had even been entrusted with the rectification of the Times' leading articles, which were written entirely in newspeak. He unrolled the message that he had set aside earlier. It read, Times, three twelve eighty three, reporting, Big Brother, Day Order, Double Plus Sun Good, Ref, Unpersons, Rewrite, Full Wise, Unsub, Anti-Filling. In old speak, or standard English, this might be rendered as, the reporting of Big Brother's order on the day of the Times of December 3rd, 1983 is extremely unsatisfactory, makes reference to non-existent persons, rewrite in full, and submit your draft to higher authority before filing. Winston read through the offending article, Big Brother's order of the day, it seemed. It had been chiefly devoted to praising the work of an organization called the FFCC, which supplied cigarettes and other comforts to the sailors on the floating fortresses. A certain comrade Withers, prominent member of the inner party, had been singled out for special mention and awarded the decoration of Order of Conspicuous Merit, second class. Three months later, FCC had been dissolved with no reasons given. One would assume that Withers and his associates were now in disgrace, but there had been no report of the matter in the press or the telescreen. It was to be expected, since it was unusual for political offenders to be put on trial or even publicly denounced. The great purges involving thousands of people with public trials of traitors and thought, criminal, thought criminals made the abject confession of their, of their crimes were afterwards executed and were special showpieces not occurring oftener than a couple of once in a couple of years. More commonly, People who had occurred the displeasure of the party had simply disappeared and never heard from again. No one had the smallest clue what might have happened to them. In some cases, they might even might not even be dead. Perhaps thirty people personally known to Winston, not counting his parents, had disappeared at one time or another. Winston stroked his nose gently with a paper clip. In the cubicle across the way, Comrade Tillerson was still still crouching secretly over his speakwrite. He raised his head for a moment. Again, the hostile spectacle flash. Winston wondered if Comrade Tillerson was engaged in the same job as himself. It's perfectly possible. So tricky a piece of work would never be entrusted to a single person. On the other hand, to turn it over to a committee would be to admit openly that it was an act of fabrication and taking place. 
Very likely, as many as a dozen people were now working away on rival versions of what Big Brother had actually said. And presently, some master brain in the inner party would select this version or that and would re-edit it and set into motion the complex processes of cross-referencing that it would be required and then chosen lie would pass into the permanent records to become truth, only to become a lie again. Winston did not know why Withers had been disgraced. Perhaps it was for corruption or incompetence. Perhaps Big Brother was merely getting rid of too popular subordinate. Perhaps Withers was someone close to him who had been suspect suspected of heretical tendencies. Or perhaps, which was the likeliest of all, the things had simply happened because purges and vaporizations were necessary for the mechanics of the government. The only real clue lie in the, in the words refs unpersons, which indicated that Withers was already dead. You could not invariably assume that this was the case when people were arrested. Sometimes they were released and allowed to remain at liberty for as much as a year, too, before being executed. Very occasionally, some person whom you would believe long dead would make a ghostly appearance at some public trial where he would implicate hundreds of others by his testimony before vanishing again, at this time forever. Withers, however, was already an unperson. He did not exist. He never existed. Winston decided that it would not be simply enough to reverse the tendency of Big Brother's speech. It would better be it would be better to make it deal with something totally unconnected with the subject. He might turn the speech into the usual denunciation of tra traitors or thought criminals, but that would be too obvious. While to invent a victory or some triumph over overproduction in the ninth W three year plan might complicate the records too much. He was in need of a piece of pure fantasy. And suddenly it sprang to mind, ready-made as it was, the image of a certain comrade Ogilvy, which had recently died in battle in heroic circumstances, were the occasional when Big Bro were the occasions when Big Brother devoted his order of the day to commemorating some humble rank-and-file party member whose life and death he had held up as an example worthy to be followed. Today he should com commemorate Comrade Ogilvy. It was true that there was no such person as Comrade Ogilvy, but a few lines of print and a couple of leaked photographs would soon bring him into existence. Winston thought for a moment, then pulled the speak right towards him and be began dictating in Big Brother's familiar style, a style once military and pendatic. And because of tricking the, a trick of asking questions and then promptly 
answering them. What lessons do we learn from this fact, comrades? The lessons from which also the fundamental principles of insock and that, etc., etc. Easy to intimidate. At the age of three, Comrade Ogilvy had refused all toys except a drum, a submachine gun, and a model helicopter. At six, a year early, a special relaxation of the rules, he had joined the spies. At nine, he had become a troop leader. Eleven, he denounced his uncle to the thought police. After overhearing a conversation which appeared to him to have criminal tendencies. At 17, he had been a district organizer of the Junior Anti-Sex League. 19, he designed a hand grenade which had been adopted by the Ministry of Peace, which at its first trial killed 31 Eurasian prisoners at one burst. At 23, he had perished in action pursued by enemy jets flying over the Indian Ocean with important dispatches. He had weighed his body with his machine gun and leapt out over the helicopter into deep waters, dispatches and all. An end, said Big Brother, which was all impossible to contemplate without feelings or envy. Big Brother added the few remarks on the purity and single-mindedness of Comrade Ogilvy's life. He was a total abstainer, non-smoker, no recreations except a daily hour at the gym. And he had taken a vow of celibacy, believing marriage and the care of a family to be incomparable to the 24-hour-a-day duty to de devotion to duty. He had no subjects of conversation except principles of Insoc. He had no aim in life except to defeat the Eurasian army and hunting down spies, saboteurs, thought criminals, and traitors in general. Winston debated to himself whether to award Comrade Ogilvy the order of conspicuous merit, but in the end he decided it was an unnecessary cross-reference that this would entail. Again, he glanced at his rival in the opposite cubicle. Something seemed to tell him with certainty that Tillerson was busy on the same job as himself, and there was in no way of knowing which version would finally be adopted. But he felt a profound conviction that it would be his own. Comrade Ogilvy, unimagined an hour ago, was now a fact and it struck him as curious that you could create dead men, not living ones. Comrade Ogilvy, who had never existed in the present, now existed in the past. And once the act of forgery was forgotten, he would exist just as authentically upon the same evidence as Charlemagne or Julius Caesar. Chapter 5 In the low-ceilinged canteen, deep underground, 
the lunch queue jerked slowly forward. The room was already in full and deafening noisy, from the grill at the counter to the steam of the stew that came pouring forth with a sour metallic smell which did not quite overcome the fumes of victory gin. On the far side of the room there was a small bar, a mere hole in the wall, where gin could be bought at ten cents at a large nip. Just the man I was looking for, said a voice at Winston's back. And he turned around. It was his friend Smee, who worked in the research department. Perhaps friend was not exactly the word. You did not have friends nowadays. You had comrades. But there were some comrades whose society was pleasanter than others. Smee was a philo- philo- He was a specialist in newspeak. Indeed, he was one of the ginormous teams of experts now engaged in the compiling of the 11th edition of the Newspeak Dictionary. He was a tiny creature, smaller than Winston, with dark hair and large, protuberant eyes, at once mournful and divisive, which seemed to search your soul closely while he was speaking speaking to you. I wanted to ask you... Whether you got any razor blades, he said. Not a one, said Winston, with a sort of guiltily haste. I've tried all over the place. It's like they don't exist anymore. Everyone kept asking you for razor blades. Actually, he had two unused ones, which he was hoarding. They had been a famine of them for months past, and any moment there would be some necessary article in which the party shops were unable to supply. Sometimes it was buttons, sometimes it was darning wool, sometimes it was shoelaces, and at the present, it was razor blades. You could only get a hold of them, if at all, by scrounging through, more or less figuratively, on the free market. I've been using the same blade for six weeks, he added untruthfully. The cue gave another jerk forward. As they halted, he turned and faced me again. Each took a greasy metal tray from the pile of the counter. Did you go and see the prisoners hanged yesterday? I was working, Winston said indifferently. I'll see it on the flicks, I suppose. Ah, an inadequate substitute, said Smee. His mocking eyes roved over Winston's face. I know you, the eyes seemed to say. I see right through you. I know you very well why you didn't go see the prisoners hanged in an intellectual way. Smee was venomously orthodox. He would talk with disagreeable, gloating satisfaction of the helicopter raids on enemy villages and the trials and confessions of thought criminals, the executions in them, in the cellars of the Ministry of Love, Take talking to him largely in a matter of getting him away from such subjects and entangling him, in po- if possible, into the technicalities of newspeak, on which he was authoritative and interesting. Winston turned his head a little to the side to avoid the scrutiny of his large dark eyes. It was a good hanging, Smeet said, 
I think it spoils it when they tie their feet together. I like to see them kicking all above and at the end and their tongues sticking out blue, quite bright blue. It's the detail that appeals to me. Next, please. The white apron prole, the ladle. Winston and Smee pushed their trays beneath the grill. Each was dumped swiftly, a regulation lunch. A, a metal pankin, a pinkish gray stew, a hunk of bread, a cube of cheese, and a mug of milkless victory coffee with one saccharine tablet. There's a tablet over there under the te- there's a table under there under the telescreen. Let's pick up a gin on the way. The gin was served to them in a handleless china mugs. They threaded their way across the crowded room and unpacked their trays into the metal top table on the corner of which someone had left a pool of stew, a filthy liquid mess which had the vomit, the appearance of vomit. Winston took up his, mun- his mug of gin, paused for an instant to collect his nerve, and gulped down the oily tasting stuff. When he winked the tears out of his eyes, he began suddenly discovered that he was hungry. He began swallowing spoonfuls of the stew, which among in his general sloppiness had spongy pinkish stuff and which was probably a preparation of meat. Neither of them spoke until they had emptied their pannikins. From the table at Winston's left, a little behind his back there was someone talking rapidly, continuously, in a harsh gabble, almost quacking like a duck, which pierced the general uproar of the room. How's the dictionary going? Winston said, raising his voice to overcome the noise. Slowly, said Smee. I'm on objectives. It's fascinating. He brightened up immediately at the mention of new speak. He pushed his pannikin aside and took his hunk of bread in one delicate hand and the cheese of the other and leaned across the leaned across the table so he might be able to speak without shouting. The eleventh edition is going to be the definite edition, he said. We're getting in we're getting the language into its final shape. The shape it's going to be when nobody has to speak anything at all. When we finish with it, people like you would have to learn it all over again. And you think, I dare say, that our chief job is inventing new words. Not a bit of it. We're destroying them. Scores of them. Hundreds of them. Every day. We're cutting the language down to the bone. The 11th edition won't be contain a single word that will become obsolete before the year 2050. He bit hungrily into his bread and swallowed a couple mouthfuls. Then he continued speaking with sort of a pedant passion. His thin, dark face had become animated, his eyes lost in their mocking expressions and grown almost dreamy. Oh, it's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Of course, it's a great wastage in the verbs and the adjectives, but there are hundreds of nouns that could be got rid of as well. It's not only the synonyms, but also the anonyms. And after all, what's the justification for a word when it's simply the opposite of another word? 
Word contains an opposite of itself. Take good, for instance. When you have a word like good, what you need, therefore, is a word like bad. Ungood do just as well. Better, because it's an exact opposite, which is, which the other is not. Or again, if you want a stronger version of good, then the sentences that would have a whole string of vague, useless words like excellent, splendid, and all the rest of them. Plus good, double plus good, if you want to be stronger still. Of course, these forms are already, but in the final version of Newspeak, there will be nothing else. In the end of the whole notion of goodness and badness, they would be covered by only six words. In reality, one word. But you don't you see the beauty of that, Winston? It was it was B.B.'s idea originally, of course, as he added as an afterthought. Sort of vapid eagerness flitted across Winston's face at the mention of Big Brother. Nevertheless, Smee immediately detected a certain lack of enthusiasm. You just don't have a real appreciation for newspeak, Winston, he said almost sadly. Even when you write it, you're still thinking in old speak. I've read some of those pieces that you write in the Times occasionally. They're good enough, but they're translations. In your heart, you would prefer to stick to old speak with all its vagueness and its useless shades of meaning. You don't grasp the beauty of the words. You don't know that newspeak is the only language, of course, where vocabulary gets smaller every year. Winston didn't know what to say to that, of course. So he smiled sympathetically. He hoped, not trusting himself to to speak. Smee bit off another corner of fabric of dark-colored bread, chewed it briefly, and went on. Don't you see that the whole aim of of doublespeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make it a thought crime, literally impossible, because there will be no words to express it. Every concept that would ever be needed would be expressed in exactly one word. With its meaning rigidly defined and all of its subsidiary meanings rubbed out and forgotten. Already in the 11th edition, we're not far from that point. But the process will soon be continuing long after you and I are dead. Every year, fewer and fewer words. The range of consciousness always smaller and smaller. And now, of course, there's no reason or excuse for committing thought crime. It's merely a question of self-discipline, reality control. But in the end, there will be no need for that. The revolution will be complete when the language is perfect. Newspeak is insock, and insock is newspeak. And he added with a sort of mystical satisfaction has it ever occurred to you winston that by the year 2050 at the very latest not a human being alive would be able to understand the conversation we are having now except winston began doubtfully and then stopped it had been on the tip of his tongue to say the proles but he checked himself not feeling fully certain that his remark was not in some way unorthodox. 
Smee, however, had defined what he was about to say. The pearls are not humans, he said carelessly. By twenty, fifty, or earlier, probably all of them, all the real knowledge of old speak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will be destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they will only, uh, only exist in new speak, and not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature, literature, literature of the party will change. The slogans will change. How can you have a slogan like freedom is slavery when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it. Orthodoxy means not thinking. And needing, not needing to think, unorthodoxy is unconsciousness. It's amazing, when you read this book in high school, you didn't really totally get the meaning. Yeah, new speak, old speak, double speak, memory holes, all of that. Controls the future, controls the past. It isn't until you become a certain age that you begin to understand what this book is about. And it's terrifying because it's what we're dealing with today. So, thanks Irish for requesting this. I'm actually having a a good time reading this one. So, um, but anyway, I'm going to try to see you back tomorrow. And uh, have a good night and sleep well.